Hello and welcome to Time for a Cherry Pan Coffee with me, Bex. And me, Eason. And welcome to our episode all about Twin Peaks to Return, part 11. There's fire where you're going. Ooh. <laughs> and another title ascribed to the Log Lady. Yes. Yeah. Getting a bit of a theme. Yeah, it's four out of 11, isn't it? Yeah. And in fact, every time she has spoken, she's said the title of an episode. You done real good with the maths, sir, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh this was a I think a really, really strong episode. It was strange. I think we said it in the previous episode, uh, part ten, which we felt was kind of a prelude or a a ten and a half kind of episode. It yeah. kind of it was a bit kind of an intermediate. But actually I think it sits really well with part eleven. You can see it as a two-hour episode, which leads into, I think, what's going to happen in the next one, Let's Rock. So I think initially there was a feeling of, oh, everything's going to happen today. But then as it started playing out, you realised that there's something else at play. It's actually just continuing the storyline and maybe almost doing a final move of the people, the puzzles into place before we enter the final what seven hours of mm. Twin Peaks: The Return? Yeah, it it does feel like something big is about to happen. Big. Uh, I know I've been speculating for a long time about when the Las Vegas storyline might wrap up, but it really does feel, particularly with some of the things that happen in this episode, it it, it feels like it's it's nearing an end. It it, it feels like so many storylines are ready to come together. And knowing that we've only got well, about seven seven hours left, I think the third act is, is ready to begin, I guess. And I also realised today that although it's seven hours left, it's only actually six weeks because the finale is going to be a two-hour one. Yeah, yeah. So it does feel a bit strange now that it feels like we're entering the closing stages. But like you say, I think you know, the Las Vegas stuff is really coming to a head now and that seems to be balancing very carefully and tilting a little bit towards coinciding with the return of Cooper certainly with what happens at the end of the episode mm. I think it's so close now I don't think they're going to drag it out any further but I think it's almost like the Twin Peaks plot is itself reaching a point where it's ready to be what's the word kind of impinged upon by both Coopers yeah and indeed the FBI, probably. Yeah. Cole and the gang. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think we should just get on with our breakdown of what's happened in part 11. Yeah. Let's do it. So part 11 begins uh, quite unusually for this season actually in Twin Peaks mm. we see a shot of the forest and we zoom down to presumably maybe the edge of the trailer park or some other piece of land which is stretching onto the plot where Miriam lived yeah. uh, so we saw all the things that happened to her in the previous episode we saw Richard Horn find her attack her we saw him you know kick the door in we saw him light the oven uh, light the candle was it going to explode but we thought it probably wouldn't because 
obviously everything was open and the gas could probably vent out it wasn't going to go we clearly hit her or at least threw her on the floor in such a way that we heard that dull thud so mm-hmm. we knew it wasn't good but she was still breathing at the end and yeah we now know that Miriam is alive yeah we did speculate she might be because we didn't actually see her die and you didn't actually see the caravan blow up um, which made us think well maybe it hasn't especially if the gas is going to escape so yeah it's interesting that she is alive because presumably now this is going to lead the police to both uh, Richard Horn and by extension also Deputy Chad yeah I think it's all going to start building a little case now because as long as she survives a little bit longer we don't know what's going to happen yeah clearly she gets found by those three kids who are playing catch outside and they've gone to get their mum and so it's clear that things are probably in place um but i did think actually two things one is to do with the fact that they're kids do you think that they are taught by her at school do you think they recognized her at all it could be because we're not sure what age she teaches but it, it could well be that they do recognise that they do go to the same school. Second thing, the eye injury again. Yeah. We're seeing a lot of those popping up and uh, I think this was pretty clear. This was a straightforward in the eye. And one minor detail which I think adds to the creepiness of the whole thing is the fact that when she emerges and she's kind of got that big eye wound as well, the fact she kind of crawls out like a bug from the underground. And it reminded mm. me a lot of or bugs generally, but also how Bob looked when he crawled across the sofa. It's very strange. Yeah, that was creepy. One thing I really liked about this scene is when it first begins and you just see the boys playing catch and the ball at one point misses them and goes off into the road and they, they run out to the road after the ball. It was already giving me kind of thematic flashbacks to the scene where the boy gets hit by Richard in the truck Hmm. and I was already thinking about it before Miriam even appeared and linked it literally to that whole storyline of the fact that she saw them just the fact that they were you know boys and they and they rushed off towards the road and I was starting to think oh no not again because of what had happened before so I thought I thought that was really cool and the other interesting thing is who do you think the mother is going to turn out to be yeah so yeah I'm not sure if if this was in the trailer part but obviously in that was a while ago now what maybe part six or something like that we were introduced to mickey who got a lift with carl rod in town and he mentioned that his uh, wife or sister or partner it was never fully explained was linda and i do wonder if maybe they've introduced this character of this mother who they reference is this going to be the linda because this would be a linda that's actually related to the richard in some way via miriam yeah, because at, at the moment, although we know of one Richard and one Linda, there's no connection between them whatsoever. Mm. But I mean, if, for example, what if Miriam tells Linda um, what she knows, but then dies or passes into a coma or, or something that means she can't tell anybody else, then Linda is the person who knows what Richard did. I'm just trying to think of ways that are ultimately going to connect them in a way that the giant question marks clue would make sense. Yeah, but we also have that other problem, which is, I think we mentioned this before, but this could be a Mike and Bobby situation. Yeah. <laughs> where the Richard and Linda, who we're introduced to first, are not the actual ones who it's meant to be related to. Yeah, so then we either stay at the trailer park, if that's 
where we were before but now we have an establishing shot of it and Becky's on the phone to persons unknown and shouts what where I don't have an effing car and starts screaming and I mean the last time we saw her she was having that fight with Stephen where Stephen was the one who's ranting and raving and now she seems to be the one who who's kind of overwhelmingly angry. So Becky then calls her mum Shelley who's working at the double R. First thing we see is the fact that Shelley's got red shoes on, which is an, which is probably the third person uh, who's got them. We have uh, who do we have before? We had uh, Audrey has them, Lil has them. I think even Janie had some as well. Yeah. She's there. She takes a call from Becky. Becky's hysterical. Uh, Becky says she needs to borrow her car. She doesn't have a car, and she wants her to come to the trailer park as quickly as possible. It's something about Stephen. Yeah, so Shelley naturally thinks that something terrible's happened and she takes off immediately and drives to the trailer park. But then we see Becky pulling a gun out from under the sofa. And I think what's interesting is also that strange thing again where Norma, again, is in the double R, still sitting in the same chair, still, what, doing accounts or something? And she, she hasn't really said that much in these episodes that she's appeared in, but she has this kind of look of somebody who's been watching this situation play out maybe for years certainly I think she's kind of quite motherly towards Shelley but she sees the same problems I think happening again and again she seems almost a little disappointed at the speed at which Shelley drops everything and goes to help Becky not because she's not sympathetic towards Becky but maybe she's seen this happen before again and again so she arrives and Becky basically grabs the keys off her, jumps the car and starts to drive off. And I, th- I think Becky must be high or something because Shelley ends up jumping on the um, bonnet of the car. It's a crazy move. <laughs> yeah. And Becky just doesn't seem to notice or care. She's just she's just going to drive off. Well, correction, it's not Shelley. It's actually a stunt double. <laughs> <laughs> With a very big wig. Yeah, so o- off Becky goes. And I... The only explanation I can think of for her kind of state of mind at that point and how explosively angry that she is is that she she must be on drugs or something like that at that point. Yeah, it's not like a... Well, it doesn't seem like a straightforward anger about what she's heard on the phone. It's more it's heightened by sort of the mental state she's in, maybe. But as uh, Shelley gets thrown off the vehicle... And Becky drives away. Again, another another car going missing or being stolen. Uh, much like uh, Jerry's, but probably not the same one. Carl shows up and finds Shelley, who actually isn't isn't seriously injured, given that she'd been thrown off the bonnet of the car. I don't know. Um, it's where you employ a decent stunt double. That's <laughs> <laughs> all that matters. He finds her, and it's interesting. The first thing I realised was that he... You know, he knows who she is. I mean, they've got mm-hmm. a close relationship, which means that although this is the new Fat Trout trailer park, it's never going to get easier to say, he has been in Twin Peaks for a while. He knows people. He knows everyone around the place. And uh, when Shelley explains what's happened, he then does the most bonkers thing possible to uh, get a ride into town, which is he gets out, what is it, like a little silver whistle mm. and blows it. And then his little chauffeur dude in the Volkswagen camper van thing rocks up I think it's funny I mean you, you know you, you never see the driver he's all in shadow it just appears like his own personal you know taxi that as it comes in they bundle in the back and it's like fully kitted out 
uh, Carl just to ride around. Yeah, what's the deal with it having a radio in the back that he can contact the sheriff's department in? And then he, he, he calls Maggie, who's the um, deputy who works on dispatch. Yeah. And he's like, oh, Maggie, it's Carl. I've got Shelley here in the van with me. As, as if Maggie knows full well that he's got a radio in his van that he sometimes calls the police on. Yeah, it's completely bonkers. I mean, what does he do? Is he like some kind of vigilante going around at night? I don't know. I mean, maybe, like, maybe because he runs the trailer park. He has so many things going wrong that he has a direct line. But even then, civilians aren't probably allowed to have a direct line to dispatch. The other thing that's kind of weird, I suppose, is do you think there's any element of the fact that because he's maybe been touched by these weird supernatural forces, you know, maybe it's not connected to anything, <laughs> but he has the power to communicate with uh, with dispatch in some bizarre way. I feel kind of bad for Norma because Shelley calls her up and she says, well, why didn't you just call Bobby? And then, without even asking, Carl gets the radio out and and gets Bobby on the line. And Shelley just hangs up on Norma. It's like, oh, yeah, see you later. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird relationship. It's kind of a bit exploitative, I suppose. She kind of looks to Norma for help, but then when she gets a solution from somebody else, she just drops it completely. I don't know. I still think it's funny, this whole thing with, with Carl and his little camper van with his special chauffeur going around. I don't know what it's called. Which we call it. Maybe the hot rod. <laughs> I don't know. The hot Carl rod. No, just the hot rod. Mm. Mm. The hot rod. So then Becky turns up at an apartment building and starts banging on the door of an apartment, um, shouting, Sirena, you're in there. A neighbour pokes her head around the door and tells her that they just left. There's nobody in there. And she seems kind of panicked. She must be able to see the fact that Becky's got a gun. And Becky just sort of flips out and fires several shots through the door, <laughs> through the front door of the Yeehaw. apartment. And it's odd because we get all these weird shots of staircases in this. It begins with a really freaky shot of staircases looking down. And then the camera charges through these corridors and down to another set of staircases where Stephen and Gersten are hiding out together. Yeah, now we haven't seen Gersten Haywood, I think, since... Was it the first episode of season two? Hmm. When she's playing the piano at that little dinner party that she has and... Leland sings along and then freaks out halfway through. Um, we knew that she was coming back. We didn't know in what capacity. We knew that Doc Hayward would be there. And we've already seen him in a previous episode um, when he's on the Skype call to Frank. We know that there's some mystery over Donna not appearing here. And there's no evidence that she's been replaced again by a third person. Yeah, but it's just very weird, though, because... Obviously, if you're watching it and you haven't really followed all these details, you wouldn't know that that's Gersten Haywood. Yeah. But if you do know that it's Gersten Haywood, it's very strange that all of a sudden the appearance of Alicia Witt appears now with Stephen and you think, what the hell's going on? There's something very wrong that's happened to the Haywood family <laughs> since we last caught up with them. Yeah, didn't, did, did anybody else think that basically, oh, Gersten, what have you done with your life? that you've ended up in this place where you're having an affair with just a really terrible man. What happened? What happened to her? I don't know. I don't know. I, I get the sense that there's just so much weird stuff that's building in Twin Peaks at the moment. But it is just very strange. It, it just looks almost like they're cowering as well. It's very awkward watching them at the bottom of that stairwell. It just looks very, very weird. And the fact they just leave it there. 
you know, I do hope they follow it up. I hope that's not just the end of we see, you know, the end of that whole plot. But it's just very odd to see that. And again, like you say, this whole idea of the staircases appearing, it almost reminds me that bit where she runs up the stairs hmm. is almost like an inverse of the shot that we used to see quite a lot in the original series, where you are looking up through the Palmer household hmm. and you see that stairwell with the fan going. It's just all very weird and. It's another example of those domestic scenes that take on a slightly ethereal feel just because the camera's all over the place. It's all very disorientating. Yeah. But I have two big questions after this. First of all, who was Becky speaking to on the phone at the beginning who apparently told her where Stephen was and, and what he was doing? And secondly... What made them leave the apartment before she got there? How did they know she was coming? Mm. Yeah, I didn't realise. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. I mean, do you think do you think it was the... No, it can't be the neighbour or anything, although she was there and she knew who Becky was looking for. There's something funny going on here. Do you think yeah. it's somebody who's playing everyone off against each other a little bit? Maybe, maybe. I just can't imagine what motive somebody would have. And certainly we've only been introduced to Becky in the context of Stephen yeah. and her parents. So it's not as if there's another person around who could be interacting and uh, sorting that out. Yeah. And then we go back to Maggie at the dispatch uh, centre and she's getting phone call after phone call from that apartment building. People reporting gunfire, presumably. Yeah, I didn't realise that until you pointed it out, but it's this... It's the same code, isn't it? But she never takes the uh, address again because it's just the same place over and over again. So I thought initially, wow, there's just crazy stuff going on in Twin Peaks. But I think it is just everyone calling out from in there. Very bizarre. So then we're back to Buckhorn and Bill Hastings is taking Team FBI out to the site where he entered the zone. And it's what looks like this kind of abandoned... um, piece of land with a couple of old kind of run-down buildings on it just in the middle of nowhere and he explains that he went through the fence he went about 15-20 feet in and he can't remember what happened after that so Gordon and Albert decide to venture in and leave Tammy behind for backup which appears to be the most ineffectual <laughs> backup in the world Mackley is in the car with Hastings they're just sitting there and first Gordon starts to see this weird vortex appearing in the sky. And as he kind of reaches out for it, it turns into this kind of slightly bleached out, stuttering view of him. And the weird thing is that Albert can see Gordon in that view. But the rest of them from behind the fence, all they can see is Gordon just standing there with his arms out. It doesn't look any different. So it's probably some kind of localised weirdness going on. And as this vortex gets bigger and bigger he starts to see through the centre of it he can see a a sort of black and white place where there are several woodsmen standing on a set of stairs and then he starts to almost kind of flicker in and out of existence and then Albert pulls him away and then we go back to the cars and we see that Diane is kind of vaguely keeping an eye on what's going on but it's clear that she doesn't want to get too involved or even look like she's paying attention and she sees one of the woodsmen appear again they kind of appear and disappear flickering Mm. in and out of existence as well and it comes up towards the side of the car Mackley doesn't notice it's unclear really if 
Hastings noticed that one as well. But it comes up to the car, it disappears, and then the next thing we know, Hastings is dead in the back of the car. Mackley screams, oh my god, oh my god, gets out. And that calls the attention of everyone over to the car. Uh, Mackley calls for backup. Diane is like, uh, there is no backup for this. Everyone looks in at the car. Mackley just completely confused. And we have uh, Gordon Cole. I think, what does he say? He says, like, uh, what happened, Mackley? Yeah. As if Mackley was somehow in charge of, you know, making sure this didn't happen. <laughs> and then they look at the uh, body on the back seat. And uh, in quite a deadpan way, Cole is like, he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Cut to ad break. Yeah, so basically half of Hastings' head is missing. And it's very reminiscent of what happened to the couple in New York City. And also reminiscent of the way the woodsmen in the flashback to the 1950s crushed the heads of, yeah. um, of the people at the radio station. And also reminds me again of what Red said about how he was going to Cut saw Horn. that guy's head open and, yeah. yeah, when he was threatening uh, Richard Horn. So I think this scene is really odd because it seemed like you know there was going to be some mission that would maybe allow them all to go into the zone. It was unclear how that was going to work. But we had that interrogation scene a few parts back where it was clear that Hastings ran this kind of pseudo-conspiracy website, the search for the zone, and he'd gone to this location and then he'd found this portal with Ruth. They'd gone in. That's where they'd met the Major. In the last episode especially, it was clear from the text message that Diane had sent to somebody else that uh, Hastings was going to take them to the zone or take mm -hmm. them to the site, I think it was, um, that the message said. And what follows, I think, is the first thing in this episode which starts to tie together lots of disparate strands of the mythology which is being built. It's the first episode where the conspiracy and the plot strands aren't diverging too much. They're really starting to come back in on themselves. So we have a few weird things going on. Right, Firstly, Diane is behaving very strangely. She's not in a particularly cooperative mood. She's there in her well, red hammer pants this time yeah. and she doesn't want to go in. But to be honest, what the hell is she even doing there? Why have they brought her along in this investigation? Yeah, I, I mean, do you think it's something to do with the fact that they're still keeping an eye on her in some way? Or maybe Cole doesn't want her, you know, out of his sight because maybe he's worried that she's going to do something. Well, I, I think I think they're basically... I think they might be trapping her. Hmm. I think they might be giving her enough information that they can eventually follow the trail from her to wherever the trail leads. I mean, what do you think is happening there? Do you think she is like on the side of Mr. C or do you think she's working with somebody else, maybe Philip Jeffries, or do you think she's got a completely different game plan that we don't know about or how do you think that's all playing out at the moment? I don't think she's sided with Mr. C. It, it wouldn't surprise me if she was doing something with a character like Philip Jeffries or maybe another player that, that we aren't aware of yet, although it's getting pretty late in the day to hmm. bring other players in. I think the only person I can think of who might fit that category is the strange ball dude who's in the picture with Mr. C. But I don't think it's going to be that character. I think it's going to be somebody who we've established. And I think, like you say, it could be somebody who's maybe FBI, maybe Jeffries, because they would have known each other at some point. Um, so that could be where that all ties together. The other thing that's really important here is what's happening with the woodsmen. Mm. So the last time we really saw them was when they were 
gathering around the convenience store and then wreaking havoc in what 1945 and 1956 in New Mexico. So the first thing I think was really weird is when you see the first woodsman hanging around the back of one of the trailers. So Hastings sees it. And Hastings, he looks very perturbed. He's seen these things before. Now this is odd because when he was in the jail, it was unclear if he saw the one that was two cells along. Mm. But clearly he's seen these things before. He doesn't like the look of it and he kind of looks away. What's even stranger is when Cole goes in, Albert points it out, doesn't he? Albert says, uh, did you see that? Mm. Or did you see it? Mm. And it's clear they know it's not a human being, as it were. It's almost like they've seen this thing before and they were maybe expecting it. Cole, I think, also says something like, do you think we're going to find one in there? So what do you think he's referring to there? Well, I don't know if they mean a portal. Like, are they aware that these places exist? Or were they referring to the woodsmen? I don't know if they've if they've seen them before or aware of their, of their existence. Yeah, things kind of changed a little bit after the previous episode where we saw Cole have that vision of Laura. So he maybe he's seen more things recently than we uh, know. Yeah. The other thing, though, did you notice the address when uh, Mackley calls for backup? Mm. It's 2240 Sycamore. Yeah, so these sycamore trees are uh, all over the place. We've had them in Las Vegas. This is the first time we've had them in Buckhorn. Mm. And then now uh, it does feel there's something funny about the nature of that address being something to do with some kind of funny portal, I suppose. So what do you think about this appearance he sees of the woodsman on the staircase? So is it the staircase that's, you know, in one of the trailers, there's this weird blurry footage of going up a staircase. Yeah. Is that the same staircase? It does look like that. So we were tweeting about this yesterday when we were saying, oh, there are some funky bits in the trailers that haven't shown up. And that's one of them. Um, it does look like at least the same angle. It's got that weird kind of juddery camera movement going up it. So it's hard to tell exactly where it is, but it does look the same. But there's also that bit where in this in is it in the same trailer or a different one where you see Cooper walking alongside somebody through a dark corridor, mm. and you wonder if there's something that's going to happen where these scenes might actually be linked. You know, maybe there's some moment where Cooper is going to have to enter the zone in some way. Yeah, and it makes me think again of the doodles that he was drawing all over the paperwork at Lucky Seven because hmm. he kept drawing stairs and a ladder and then what looked like something falling or crashing hmm. and I have bad feelings about this <laughs> bad feelings and what about the appearance of the woodsman though in that vision is that is that something that Cole is seeing in the portal really or is it like a vision which has been presented to him when he's you know being absorbed by it in some way I, I thought the implication was that it was what was on the other side. But then Hastings said that Major Briggs had been hiding somewhere, but then he was worried that people were going to find him. So was that a place where he was hiding, but now it's being inhabited by woodsmen because they discovered it? Yeah, this whole it's in our house now situation. And I think there was a query over what this place actually was, um, where Briggs was hiding. But I, I'm getting a strong sense, I think we talked about it before as well, that this is not the White Lodge, which was all green and lush in Briggs's vision back in the original series. It's not the Black Lodge, but it does look like 
in many ways the uh, area where the giant and Senorita Dido lived, mainly because it's black and white. And you can mm-hmm. see that that swirly vortex thing, when it zooms in, it does become not only bleached, but really black and white in appearance as well. And that's certainly the that's the colour palette of the scene with the woodsman as well, isn't it? Yeah, but also somebody on Twitter pointed out that the wallpaper in the room where the woodsmen are looks like the wallpaper in the rooms that were in the painting that was given to Laura by the Chalfonts in If I Walk With Me. Hmm. So do you think that if that was a portal or an image of a portal in the painting that you could physically enter in your dreamlike state, which is what seems to happen to Laura, do you think that, yeah, it's that that world is being occupied by the woodsmen, it's now spread and they're everywhere now. But it was originally maybe a safer place? Because that's where she goes through and that not that the scene where Cooper says, you know, don't take the ring and all that business. Mm. So there's something going on here, but I think it's unclear exactly what the nature of what's on the other side of that thing is. The other aspect of it being a staircase is, is this the staircase that goes up to the place above the convenience store Mm. in a kind of metaphysical way yeah so is the place above the convenience store not just a physical place that exists but is it for example in a in a another dimension or something that can be accessed from a lot of different places Mm. because all the confusion if i walk with me about the fact that it was meant to be in seattle Mm. and then now when we we saw the stuff in part eight looked like it was in new mexico but maybe there are lots. Maybe it's not just one place. Maybe it's a place that exists in in multiple places across multiple times and spaces that can be accessed. And that same thing would also fit with the movement of that telephone pole. It's such a small detail, but mm. we we know that that thing is in two different places. And it would, wouldn't be that much of a stretch to think that maybe items related to this vortex or world are able to move as well. There's one other thing I think which is kind of interesting also about the nature of that world in relation to where the giant is, which is the flickering that you see on Cole. Mm. So when Albert's watching, you know, he kind of grabs him and pulls him in. So he can't see what Cole is seeing. Um, but it does look like he's his whole body isn't disappearing, is it? You see this kind of... It looks almost like it's a paper version of him that's been cut into pieces. And parts of it seem to flicker in and out. And they're almost about to disappear until Albert grabs him. And the only time I can think of that we've seen that kind of disappearance before is when Cooper disappeared after his conversation with the giant at the beginning of the series. When he was sitting in the chair, he said, I understand, after listening to the giant's three clues. And then he kind of fizzled out in the same way which also is a link between, yeah, I think this world where the giant and Senorita Dido live. And one little minor detail, which I thought was quite amusing, was that bit where they first turn up and walk through that hole in the fence or whatever to uh, get access to the area, which is that Albert seems to have a, a regular modern gun, but I don't know what the hell Cole has. He has some kind of weird six-shooter pistol thing (laughs) like a cowboy 
It's very bizarre. I mean, like, I don't know why you would have a weapon like that because they must have like a standard issue service weapon, but you decided that's the one that works. <laughs> but it does remind me a lot of the gun that uh, is on the statue. Yeah. That um, Dougie keeps getting attracted to. Mm. That kind of old style gun. So maybe when we were thinking, oh, he's being reminded of a cowboy or lawman or something like that, maybe he was actually thinking of Gordon Cole in some way. And of course, the other thing that happens when they're in this kind of abandoned lot is that they find Ruth's body, finally. And I couldn't tell from any of the shots whether it was physically there before Gordon almost goes into the vortex. Because they noticed it afterwards, and maybe it had been there the whole time and they just noticed it after those events. But the fact that they don't see it until after the, the vortex kind of opens, I was wondering if maybe it had returned the body in some way. Um, and that was and that was where they found it. Because it was in a really weird position that one of the arms was up. And it was like it had just kind of frozen in a, in a kind of weird position. Yeah, I think it's quite notable as well that, like you say, with the arm, you can't really see the numbers on it being written so Hastings said that the but he actually said that the numbers were written on her hand I presume it could be the same thing I don't know but there's something funny going on because obviously later on we see a picture but it's weird they have no reference point for that so it could be something it could be nothing I'm still just a bit taken by Diane's behaviour in this whole thing you know sitting back observing those woodsmen I think she's seen the woodsmen before hasn't she yeah and she knew what to keep away or like has she been like if she if for example she is interacting with Philip Jeffries, do you think he has maybe explained what these things are? He must have done because if if she knows generally speaking what kind of place Hastings was going to take them to, if she has awareness of what these um, zones or portals or whatever they are might be, then she must know how dangerous they are because she she sees this guy kind of flickering in and out approaching the car anybody else would have been screaming what the hell is that look out behind you there's someone coming yeah. up against the car you know okay you might have questioned if you were seeing something if it was kind of there and not there but you would say something yeah. or at least look perturbed she didn't even look perturbed about it yeah she kind of looks away as if like she just doesn't want to know <laughs> like maybe she knows what's going to happen next yeah to Hastings it's interesting that they only kill Hastings and they do it now when presumably they could have done it when he was in jail. There was one of them yeah. there. Do you think there's anything funny about his behaviour in this scene as well? Because I, I think when we first saw him, he was very controlled when he was being interviewed after first being arrested. Mm. And he clearly showed this underlying anger when he was talking to Phyllis, you know, talking about the fact he knew about her affair. But then when we next saw him was at the interrogation, he'd completely broken. But then now, is it just that he's in shock that he's so quiet? Or, you know, are there different phases where he's maybe been inhabited or not? Maybe this somehow relates to the appearance of uh, the woodsman. Yeah, I don't know if it was just the shock of being back in the same place. And, you know, at first he must have told himself that he had dreamt it all because it was too too nuts to, mm. to believe and he wouldn't have wanted to believe it but but maybe having gone through the sort of extreme emotion of that interrogation scene maybe now he's just kind of resigned to what happened and mm. he's had to accept that it actually did happen mm. he just seems incredibly sad 
I also find it odd. I'm just thinking about it now. Why they basically pull him out of prison to go and take him to to take them to the site. Yeah. But it's interesting that you know who we haven't seen in a while is that other detective from the state police who was in charge apparently. So he was oh, kind yeah. of shuffled out. I think he was there for that scene with Constance where the ring was first discovered. Yeah. But maybe his investigation has been sidelined because the FBI are involved. Yeah, that's weird. We haven't the dude from the initiative, yeah. Murphy. Yeah. yeah, we haven't seen him in ages. Um in fact he hasn't even been referenced and yet although the FBI are there they haven't kicked JJ from JJ's vinyl off mm. the case. Mackley is still involved. Yeah. Which is kind of odd. Yeah. I'm so I'm still not sure what that guy was all about. As it still wouldn't surprise me if there turned out to be something funny about him. Mm. I'm not sure what. So then we return to Twin Peaks. And now we're getting scenes which are deep in the middle of what's going on in the town. And we're at the double R. And one thing I noticed that was really strange, I'd never seen it before, but it must be there in every establishing shot, is that just behind the double R is another building or something on the roof. And it's actually a sign for the Unity Lodge, followed by a number 198 and then F dot and then something else which is obscured by a chimney stack, A dot M. I don't know what that was about, but it's mm. strange that they've got a very prominent sign called the Unity Lodge somewhere near the Double R. Mm. So then in the Double R, uh, Bobby and Shelley are basically staging, I guess, some kind of intervention in Becky's life, asking her if she wants to leave Stephen. Um, she doesn't know what she wants to do. She says she hates him. She never wants to see him again. But also she loves him and he's going through a bad time they're kind of rolling their eyes like they've heard this so many times before and they're clearly very upset because they can see that she's in a really bad situation and they can't make her do anything about it but they clearly want her to do anything about it and interesting Bobby says first of all that uh, if if he hadn't worked for the sheriff's department Becky would probably be in jail for um, shooting in the door shooting in Gerson's door and also he says that you know he could have busted Stephen on plenty of occasions presumably for drug offences and stuff Mm. like that but he didn't because he'd hoped that Stephen would come around for Becky's sake there's an awful lot of nepotism going on (laughs) in law enforcement in Twin Peaks I mean how many breaks can one person give to their family? You know who doesn't give out nepotism? Mike (laughs) (laughs) Mike and his car dealership they don't care (laughs) So Bobby basically says that you know if the opportunity arises to bust him in the future I'm just going to do it and, and that's it um, and, and Shelley's clearly very upset and she really wants Becky to uh, to leave Stephen but no sooner have they talked about this when suddenly Red appears at the window of the diner and Shelley sees him and she just gets this you know big dumb grin on her face and she runs off out of the diner just as Becky is finally apologising for throwing her off the bonnet of the car earlier on in the day. Yeah, I think it's it's pretty much immediately after Shelley's almost in tears yeah. saying, you know, we don't want to lose you and it's all very emotional and it's a very kind of serious scene uh, which kind of brings to mind those moments when Garland Briggs and Betty Briggs were trying to help Bobby. Mm. That same kind of thing. But it's strange that all of a sudden Shelley's persona just changes immediately when she sees Red through the window. 
Yeah, and we'd we'd been afraid of this ever since part one, basically, mm. when they looked at each other in the roadhouse. Then there hasn't been any hint of it since then. But now I, I kind of worst fears are realised. They do seem to be in kind of relationship, especially as we now seem to know a bit more about what kind of person Red is. Yeah. If need he is a person, um, who knows about that? But Bobby looks absolutely heartbroken at this point. So, you know, maybe he still has feelings for Shelley. Shelley is still Shelley Briggs. We finally yeah. get to see her full name in the credits. So we don't know if they're divorced, separated, whatever it is. But Bobby looks desperately unhappy. And Shelley, she she acts kind of giddy in the same way that she did back in the original series when she was with Bobby. Yeah, and Norma kind of rolls her eyes looking at what's happening. The one thing I think is really odd, and this is probably me seeing something that really isn't there, but do you think that Red is actually present in this scene? Because you don't actually see a reaction shot of Bobby or Becky to seeing Red. It's almost like they're looking in the direction of where Shelley is looking, but they don't see what she's seeing. And then she kind of gets up and runs away. And you could either see it like they're watching her go or they're completely confused as to why she's gotten up and run off. I don't know. I, th- I think the way that Bobby looked when he saw them together outside the door, it looked like he was sad rather than confused. But do you think he's seen this before? Do you think he's just started behaving like this? Because it just recalls that thing that happened in the very first episode like you were saying where we could see red and he does a whole finger pointy gun thing but no one else was paying attention to him he was sitting on his own i suppose he i, I suppose he did interact with jean-michel renault didn't he so that i suppose does change that a little bit but it just seems a bit odd i mean the more i've seen that scene it just there's something not right about it almost like red might not actually be present but i don't know i'm probably talking rubbish but the the way that shelly and red sort of started kissing outside the door and then they looked in the diner and they realized that people could see them and then they moved away so that they could be kind of out of the line of sight it reminded me of exactly what becky and Stephen did the first time that we met them mm. when they were in the car outside the diner and Norm and Shelley were inside looking out and they could see them and they realised that so they moved the car yeah. around the corner so they couldn't see them. So it was it was kind of like, like mother, like daughter, <laughs> that same kind of behaviour. I mean, Shelley was almost behaving like a teenager again. And one really subtle detail I think I heard in the scene with Red as well, I think mainly when he appears at the window and maybe when he's leading Shelley away as well, this is a very subtle sound of the hum of electricity, which appears sort of two or three times. And because the electricity is linked with general lodginess, I think this does reinforce this idea that there's something not quite right about him. So then all of a sudden, a couple of gunshots ring out uh, in the double R, and Bobby goes into full robocop mode <laughs> as he kind of uh, gets to the front can, it's interesting all of a sudden he's just so much more responsible and grown up here it's very odd seeing him like that mm. um takes charge of the situation and goes outside to see what's going on and 
yeah, he faces some unusual activity happening uh, immediately outside the double R. Yeah, so it it turns out that some kid in the back of a van has found a gun uh, under the seat or something that the mother kind of mooed, not knowing what it was. Uh, he fires a couple of shots out the window that come into the double R, and um, the van's pulled up. The mother's freaking out, screaming at the father, "But why would you leave a gun in the car?" It all feels very kind of like Mark Frost making a point, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's very much him giving his little comment on gun control, I presume. Yeah. Um, it reminds me a little bit of that. Well, I mean, there was that speech that Janie E gives. That was another frosty one when uh, she's talking to Dewey Crow and the other dude. Oh, yeah. What, about the 99%. Yeah, we're the 99%. Yeah. It's yeah. the same kind of thing. I think it's interesting that these little moments creep in. Um, certainly here, I think it's interesting because what comes next potentially isn't as real world as the scene with the gun going off actually. yeah because in the world of twin peaks that's a very mundane thing to have happened yeah. um and that hasn't turned into some like crazy slapstick thing of, of people dying and you and you've got this kind of comic image of the boy who's just kind of standing there with his hands in his pockets not really seeming that perturbed and then um, Bobby looks at the boy and then looks at the father, who's, who's dressed almost exactly the same, <laughs> just standing there with his hands in his pockets. And it's like a little kind of like, like father-like son moment. Mm. We just had like mother-like daughter between Becky and Jelly. Mm. And now we get a little glimpse of, uh, well, the depressing like father-like son outside. And the, the cars that are stacking up behind them on the road are honking their horns and it's creating this incredibly kind of disturbing cacophony of, of sound going on and then jesse turns up <laughs> who I, I still find to be one of the strangest characters in, yeah. in this new show he's, he's he is in his own little world isn't he the whole time yeah which is probably not safe if you're a law enforcement <laughs> officer to be that that distant all the time but you know but he was a big ed's gas farm and he had shots <laughs> so, so he's, he's turned up to see what's going on but isn't big ed's gas farm kind of much further away it was like on that logging road wasn't it yeah, yeah it was quite far so. away so how, whether you could hear it i mean it i've never really understood if the geography is that consistent I mean, maybe they want just to introduce big ed's name so people haven't forgotten but it seemed a bit odd yeah so bobby sends him off to sort out the id from the parents and he goes to try and um stop the woman in the car directly behind them from just constantly <laughs> Uh, blasting her horn over and over and over again and he, he goes around to the driver's window and she just starts this bizarre rant about how uh, they're late for dinner yeah something like um, I wrote this down um, what are you doing we're trying to get home we're already late we're late for dinner it's way past 6.30 why is this happening I saw that gun go shooting out the window her uncle is joining us. She hasn't seen him in a very long while. We're late. We've got miles to go. Please, we have to get home. She's sick. And I think initially Bobby is trying to calm the situation down. I think it's just somebody who's a bit road ragey, I suppose. But then what happens next is the strangest Lynchian horror moment we've seen in a very long time. Yeah, because at first you can't really see the girl in the passenger seat. And it's only really when the woman is saying, you know, oh, oh, we, we're going, 
she's sick and you're thinking well who yeah. I can't see anyone else in the car and then but when she starts moving you realise that she was kind of crumpled up in the passenger seat yeah the whole it's time. really weird though she's she doesn't like float up but she's it's got this weird kind of very jerky movement as she's kind of starting to sit up but it does look almost like she's being lifted up a little bit and she kind of hovers a little bit in certain parts of the move as she's sitting up it's all very weird and then she turns towards bobby and at that point she starts throwing up all kinds of weird gunk i don't know what it is at first i thought you know is this is this a yellow garmin bosier thing or is it just some other stuff that's going on? i mean it could be completely unrelated yeah, it genuinely wouldn't surprise me if we never see this again and mm. it is never explained what the hell was going on. But there is something about what's, what they're saying about this thing about being late for dinner. Yeah. You know, the last time there was a dinner thing that was going on, it was it was the Morgans who were coming <laughs> over for dinner for the Hastings. But this time we're having a conversation about being late for dinner after a couple of hours of Twin Peaks which have used strong references to Mr. C's message. Mm. Mr. C isn't in the episode, but his presence maybe is being felt here, because his text message was what the the conversation is lively around the dinner table. Yeah, um, that's the only dinner reference I can think of. But there's something weird going on. I mean, do you think these? I mean, the obvious thing here, I suppose, is are these characters uh, people? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's a dumb question, maybe. But you know, are they people or are they strange? spirits or something weird well, I don't know I mean how can how can that girl be alive in the state that she's in she didn't yeah. seem alive and she said it didn't look like she needed to go for dinner <laughs> uh, not where she eats uh, <laughs> but where she's eaten mm. <laughs> good reference yeah a bit mm. of a bit of Shakespeare for everyone yeah I, I don't know and, and the other weird reference to the uncle mm. because I suppose the most prominent uncle niece relationship that there has been in Twin Peaks is Leland and Maddie hmm. and also there's that bit where when Cole is introducing Lil hmm. doesn't he call her you know, she says she's my was it she's my mother's sister's girl or something yeah. so again you don't hear a reference to the uncle then yeah which is kind of odd but I don't know. I think I think you're right. I mean, the last, I mean, the most prominent uncle thing is to do with Maddie, but I don't know. I mean, are we going to see this uh, this situation being relevant later on, or is it just a throwaway scene just to show that the kind of mania which is building in Twin Peaks when something like this is happening? I mean, it does feel like things are starting to really kick off in the town, and this could just be part of it. And before we move on, I think one thing that I realised whilst watching the scene in the diner between Bobby, Shelley and Becky is the reference that Bobby makes to Becky having to make everything right again, having to pay for the door I just realised, I mean was it Mike who was going out with Donna? Yeah. So Bobby must know Gersten, he clearly knows who she was trying to shoot at through the door. Yeah. So there's some weird thing that's going on where he must know more about the relationship and he doesn't mention Donna at all but it's clear that things have changed a lot in the last 25 years in the Hayward household yeah because he definitely knew Donna yeah and it feels odd because although Gersten was Donna's younger sister she was only a few years younger wasn't she yeah and yet 
she's now having an affair with his daughter's husband. Yeah. So it's like a weird, almost kind of like intergenerational yeah, thing. Yeah, very strange. That Gersten's almost old Twin Peaks, even though she was younger. Yeah. And I don't. It, it just feels odd that, it, that there's no reference at all to to who she is mm. from Bobby. Yeah, very strange. So then we're back in Twin Peaks Chef's Department, and Hawk and Frank are looking at a very old map, and the map itself is actually shaped like the two mountains of, of Twin Peaks. Oh, really? Yeah, did you see it when it was on the table? I didn't notice that. And um, Hawke describes it as being very old, but always current. Um, a living map. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he explains what some of the features on the map are. He mentions the fact that he thinks that Major Briggs' directions are pointing them to somewhere that's close to where the listening post used to be, but which is also in a very kind of sacred site on one of the mountains yeah this is because they're planning to make their trip to jack rabbit's palace which could have happened this episode but it's probably gonna happen in the next one yeah and frank asked about a fire symbol that's on there and hawk explains that actually it's not like fire fire that it's something more like modern electricity and that it can have good and bad intentions behind it depending on on i suppose on the person yeah it's it's interesting that they've made this very explicit connection between the constant talk about fire, which happens in the series, and the ever-present sound of electricity and humming that accompanies a lot of these lodge-like events as well. They're kind of very explicitly stating that this is linked in some way. And again, it ties back to Hawk having an inherent understanding of all of this because it seems to be entwined with the mythology that um, the Nez Pierce have established as well, which has been passed to him as well. So he does seem to know about these lodge-related things and symbols. Well, he says that the the patterns in the stars, based on the date where they're supposed to go there, the patterns on the stars in the map point to a particular part of the map that has black corn on it. Hmm. And he explains that you know, while corn is a symbol of fertility, the black corn is is also kind of evil, I suppose. And that if you put it together with the fire, you get black fire. Yeah, I mean, I think you see, again, a direct link with the creamed corn, the Garmin Bosia. Um, I do wonder, if I think his description is that the black corn is diseased and unnatural. Do you think that relates to the woodsman as well? Are they considered diseased and unnatural as well? It, it could be. I mean, it you know, it, it could go back to, to what we thought before, which is maybe they are sort of radioactive yeah. in some way um, and that they damage the things that are around them as well because of that. It's, it's interesting that um, the map has the symbol on that was on Mr. C's playing card the one with the head with the horns that might look like the, the kind of mother experiment figure mm. from from part eight. And um, that symbol was also on Major Briggs's note, but when Frank tries to ask him about it, he's just like, you don't ever want to know what what that is. Well, it's kind of odd because he clearly does need to know because they're going there <laughs> and he might be about to face something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of a bit annoying that he uh, is suddenly so cagey after he's rocked up with a map knowing there's a symbol in there <laughs> which Frank is going to ask about. It's kind of annoying. 
but yeah, there's there's a lot going on in that map. Um, you'll see Owl Cave as well. Hmm. Um, at the base of at the very base of I think Blue Pine Mountain. I think that's how it's uh, how it's sketched out as well. But yeah, there's something going on here where. I mean, I I think he does refer to it as his map, doesn't he? But he can't have had this map all the time. Otherwise, he would have used it repeatedly uh, yeah, to I kind mean, of interrogate <laughs> the mysteries of uh, of what's going on in the woods around Twin Peaks. Yeah, I mean, it could have been kind of handy at the end of season two, didn't it? <laughs> but also, did you notice there's an owl on the map? Oh, yeah, it was near the near the black fire, was it? Yeah, it's yeah. perched in a tree and it's, ne- it's to the left-hand side of the black fire on hmm. the map. So a sort of bright owl sitting up there. What do you think that's to do with? Probably just a bit owly. <laughs> I think what it could be to do with, beyond it being a bit owly, <laughs> is um, I do wonder if that whole thing, I think there were, you could see a little, like a yurt or teepee mm. next to it. I did wonder if that region of the map related to uh, the site where Cooper and Briggs go camping. Uh, oh, where, and where Briggs, Briggs gets is- a... Yeah. Disappears. Yeah, yeah, because you see an owl or You hear one. You hear one and then yeah. doesn't Cooper look up and he, he sees one. And then later on, when he's describing what happened to uh Betty, they have a conversation where he relates the fact that he heard an owl and mm. Betty's like, Oh yes, that's very important. So I think that was something that seemed to you know, resemble that scene on the map. So then in a slight callback to uh the way that Lucy used to man the phones at Twin Peaks, she patches a call through to uh, Hawk from the log lady. Yeah, and she begins with this really weird comment where she says, I don't know why I'm thinking about furniture because Andy and I never spend any time at home. And I don't know if this was a call back to their you know, little argument about what kind of chair they were going to get, or if it was simply attempting to kind of shine a light on the fact that it now is clearly quite late in the evening and she's still there yeah. so what is she still doing there is is it basically meant to just keep the audience from thinking why would Lucy still be in the reception <laughs> at this time of night but it is weird because another point about the timing is that this is the same day yeah um as they found the message in that little tubular device from Briggs so time has not passed as quickly in Twin Peaks as it has in other places because they refer to uh, the time when they go to Jack Rabbit's Palace still being a day away. Yeah. So it must still be the 29th of September or be at the night of that or the very early morning of the 30th. Yeah. So Lucy's calling to put a call through from the log lady who once again gets the title line of the episode. Mm-hmm. And she's called to tell Hawk that um, her... She knows that Hawk has found something, but Hawk can't tell her what it is. Mm. And she says, my log is afraid of fire. There's fire where you are going. Mm. Yeah, it's it's odd. I mean, I've always thought about the idea that you know, the spirit of her husband, the woodsman as well, is trapped in that log and he died in a fire, I think. There's something going on here. But I think it's very odd. I mean, what she says, it's not as in-depth as her monologue before. Mm. but there's a lot of repetition. She says the same statement twice. She asks if Hawk can hear her twice, etc. It's all a bit strange. I think it was a bit odd. What did you think about Hawk not being able to tell her or not wanting to tell her what he'd found, given that they seem to be quite open up until now? Yeah, I mean, 
Was it just because the sheriff was sitting next to him? Yeah, you can't be <laughs> revealing all this stuff to... But it's odd, though, because Frank clearly is not in tune with what's going on, but he's very accepting of it. And he hasn't shown any dislike of information coming from uh, the log lady in helping their investigation. I mean, certainly he was very intrigued about her initial clues to Hawk about him being able to find the something that was missing, etc. Mm. And then we get Jesse popping up for the second time in the episode <laughs> uh, to ask Frank if he wants to go see his new car. <laughs> Which is, it, I just, I genuinely don't know what's going on with him. Yeah. He seems spaced out in a, a vaguely similar way to the way that Candy is spaced out. Yeah. They're just living on another wavelength altogether. Yeah. So then we're back in Buckhorn. And Cole and the gang are sort of taking stock after everything that happened out in the zone. Gordon's hand is shaking, and it's a bit like the way people's hands shook at the end of season two, you know, when the Black Lodge got near to opening. People started sort of uncontrollably shaking. Yeah, they had that weird stringy music in the background, and everyone was sort of staring at their hands that were shaking. But wasn't that the left hand yeah. in those cases? Because that was to do with... Well, I always thought it was linked to... You know, the owl ring and the effect it has on your arm. That that power seems to manifest itself in the left arm, which is why Mike cut it off. It was strange, but I'm not sure if it was super important that it was a different arm. It was odd to see it. That was, I think that was the key thing. It was uh, it was interesting that they used that motif again. Yeah. So it, it's telling that Gordon has been you know sort of physically affected by this encounter that, mm. that he's had. You don't know if it, if it's you know stress or is it something that actually happens to people when they get close to one of these kind of mm. rifts? Is that what happened in in Twin Peaks? And then he asked Albert about the photo that he took of Ruth, Ruth Davenport's arm yeah. that has the coordinates on, and Albert gets out and it's it seems really odd to me because it's almost like they're intentionally looking at it in front of Diane. And Diane is kind of leaning round and she's she's sort of mouthing the numbers like she's trying to memorise them. She's more she's more tactless than Chad is when he does his uh <laughs> gonna go and get the mail. Yeah. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> and then uh Albert sees her doing it yeah. and just kind of looks at her a bit funny. And you think, what's going on here? Who is watching who? Who mm. is trying to trap who with with this situation? I can almost see a a version of events where Cole has told Diane to keep an eye on Albert and he's also told Albert to keep an eye on Diane. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's keeping his eye on Tammy, apparently. <laughs> yeah. And the, the picture looked a bit strange because he says that the last digits are smudged but they didn't look smudged. Hmm. But the first digits looked kind of weird. They aren't yeah, weird. They looked a bit weird. So I think what was strange was the, I think it was the first couple of letters I can't remember what they were, um, but they looked like they were on a very lightened or cleaned up bit of skin almost because they were much paler in that bit than they were with regard to the skin tone um, in the rest of the arm. I think it was a, I think it was like 46 or 48 or something at the very beginning. So it just looked like that region had been you know, badly photoshopped or something. Yeah, so I didn't know if they were trying to trick Diane into giving the wrong coordinates to someone who they will then go and find wherever yeah. those coordinates are. And Albert begins to say that it's a small town in the north or something, and then the others come in. Yeah, which so, must be Twin Peaks. Yeah. But even then, I mean, would you find that Albert would call it 
a small town in the north, blah, 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 rather than just say Twin Peaks. They all know where Twin Peaks is. Yeah, I mean, even Diane must know because yeah. she got all the tapes from, from Coop. She would know that's where he went missing. Yeah, it just seems a bit odd, unless he was trying to drag it out a little bit, you know, just to kind of wait for a moment when it, it would be interrupted and he wouldn't have to continue. I'm not sure. I mean, maybe it isn't Twin Peaks, but I get the feeling it probably is. You know, it just kind of drags the scene out. The other thing I thought was interesting was that uh, phrase that Albert uses, that uh, reference to Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Oh, where he says to give the the milk, hot milk to yeah. the cat or something. Because that just reminded me immediately of what uh, Mr. C said on the phone. That, uh, you know, he's making that crazy phone call in Yankton Prison. And he says the cow jumped over the moon. It's the same mm. kind of weird code i think uh it just seemed it seemed very odd and i wondered if that was like a, a special way of talking that members of the blue rose team uh maybe used it just it didn't seem like a joke from albert or maybe he was used to after the previous day uh somebody like constance getting all of his jokes and now no one did again mm, sad yes then tammy and mackley bring in trays full of coffee and donuts and they all sit around having a drink. And is it just me, or was Diane sitting on a really weirdly high stool? <laughs> With her hammer pants. Yeah, like a really totally unnecessarily <laughs> high position over everybody else. Everyone else was sitting in a variety of mm. fairly normal-sized chairs. Um, I think Tammy might have been sitting on a, on a chair that was slightly high. Or either that or she's just incredibly tall, <laughs> um, sitting next to Mackley. But, but it, it must have been deliberate that that basically Diane was made to look like the odd person out in the mm. room, like she didn't fit with everybody else, which just makes me more suspicious of her. Mm. But that could be a misdirection. Yeah. Or it could be they ran out of furniture. <laughs> <laughs> I think David Lee should have knocked something up in the background. Um, yeah, what's weird is when they're talking, that you know they start referring to the woodsman. And it's strange because... In any other show, I can imagine these slightly supernatural events being kept out of the discussion with, you know, regular people. But here, people are openly talking about these things, these strange figures they're seeing. Mm. It's like they're not as weird as people think in this world, at least for the Blue Rose team. Yeah. But but Cole says that he, he's only just remembered that he saw them. Yeah. So is there some kind of weird memory loss? Like when Hastings said he couldn't remember yeah. what happened when he went into the zone. It's something weird. But he does talk about seeing him in a room, whereas they're on a staircase. Yeah. So do you think he saw more than we saw? You know, Because maybe when he was actually flickering in and out, do you think he did what Philip Jeffries did, which was transport himself into the convenience store room? and uh, Sorry, the room above the convenience store and uh, see what was going on. Is that what he was thinking about? I couldn't really tell. Because also what happened is Diane also says that she saw one as well, which she didn't reveal mm. um, earlier on. But curiously, she says that she saw the woodsman getting out of the car, whereas we know that she saw it getting in. So I don't know how that fits. Yeah, and then both Tammy and Macri say they didn't see anything and she gets very defensive about it. Yeah, But no one seems to care when Tammy in particular says she didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> So now we're back in Las Vegas. Yay! And uh, Bushnell is getting ever closer to uncovering this organised crime ring that he now thinks is 
operating um, partly through his firm and partly with police corruption and he believes that the attempts to kill Dougie are proof that this is going on. And he explains that because of what Cooper's found, uh, they're going to pay out to the Mitchum brothers and that the Mitchum brothers have asked to meet with him, which we know to be with the intention of killing him. But obviously Bushnell thinks that they're going to be really happy once they hand over a cheque for $30 million. Yeah, you see that little snippet at the beginning when... Well, two things that are funny. One is when Phil Bisbee brings Dougie in by leading him with the coffee, mm. which is now his new way of doing it. But also there's that there's that same look that Sinclair gives earlier on when he sees uh, Dougie uh, talking with Bushnell, where he knows that something is up. And I think he knows that his game may be up. Certainly after he went out on a limb to go and speak to uh, the Mitchum brothers in the previous hour to kind of stake his innocence and and uh, blame everything on Dougie. But what's odd about this is that we're starting to see, again, the closure of this storyline. It's like it's one dump of exposition uh, from Bushnell, which is explaining how potentially all these things are going to wrap up. We know that there's this meeting that's coming up. And certainly, I think, as a result of what could happen, we can see a lot of the Las Vegas strands starting to wrap up as well. Yeah, and again, Cooper stares at the poster behind Bushnell, the boxing poster. Do you think there is going to be some boxing moment that Bushnell is going to have? I think there is, and I think at this point, the the, the sole remaining contender for getting punched in the face is Sinclair. Mm. (laughs) What do you think about the fact that you know, we were talking about this in the previous episode, but there does seem to be a day missing in Las Vegas. Yeah, because they were supposed to sit down and talk about it the day after Dougie Coop had gone to the police station with Janie E. But we've gone through two whole days and nights, and now it's a third day. And we know this because of the Mitchum Brothers storyline. Yeah. Um, because this is now the day after they were approached by Sinclair late in the evening, so there does seem to be missing missing time, and he's still he's still wearing a suit. Yeah. So so is, is Janie like taking to the dry cleaners all yeah. the time? Yeah, and it's interesting that this stuff is playing out in the absence of Mister Todd. Yeah. And in the absence of potentially Hutch as well. Yeah, because weren't they going to get sent to Vegas after they killed Warden Murphy? Yeah. So we're not really sure how that's how that's happening, but I presume we will see that. Yeah. And then we see uh, the Mitchum brothers having breakfast together at half past two in the afternoon, <laughs> which I really love because obviously they work really late through the night at the casino. So if they get to sleep at about 6am, then they wake up about 2.30 in the afternoon <laughs> and have a nice civilised bowl of cornflakes. <laughs> I think what's also interesting here is, so they're meeting is meant to happen at 5.30 in the evening. And is it Bradley? I, I, know, I keep getting confused. Is it Rodney or Bradley, who's uh, uh, Jim Belushi? Oh, I, I can't... I don't know. Jim Belushi, Belushi, anyway. <laughs> um, so he's had some strange dream, which is causing him to reevaluate what their plans are for Dougie. So he doesn't reveal too much of it now, but... He basically talks about this meeting that is going to happen and how he doesn't think it's the right thing to do, potentially. Whatever he saw is making him think twice about what's happening. And I think this 
whole idea of this dream that he's having, it links to two kind of really important bits. Firstly, there's the scene about, what, a third of the way into Fire Walk With Me, when Cooper refers to having a dream, when he's talking to Gordon Cole, which is puzzling him quite a lot. But they never really reveal what could happen, well, what's happened, but it may be linked to what we've just seen in Deer Meadow. The second thing is obviously the dream that Cooper has at the uh, near the start of season one, when he's gone to the Red Room for the first time and he has his first interactions with the little man from another place and Laura, and he wakes up and he can't remember everything, but he knows that what he saw in this dream was important. It was a code waiting to be cracked. And it does feel like that's what Jim Belushi's character is doing here. So uh, Doug is going out to meet the car while the Bushnell is kind of guiding him outside to meet the car that's going to take him to see the Mitchens. And he sees uh, Mike in the Red Room beckoning him over towards what looks like a cafe. Um, I think it might be the same kind of bakery, coffee shop type place that uh, the guy gets all the coffee from for everybody. And we next see him carrying a giant cardboard box, but you would never guess what was inside it because who on earth would put what is inside in a giant cardboard box? It's very bizarre. So the limo turns up and it's the same limo driver who drove him back from the Silver Mustang Casino and he recognises him. He's like, ah, Red Door guy, right? And then as he drives him through the city to a, a kind of reworked version of Viva Las Vegas, he starts to look... He has these occasional looks in, in the rearview mirror like he seems almost kind of sheepish or sad about the fact that he's taking this guy because he must he must know that he works for gangsters, right? He must know that he's not taking him anywhere good. <laughs> so he drives him out into the middle of nowhere in the Nevada desert where the Mitchums are waiting for him. But they're having an argument in the car because uh, Belushi Mitchum is saying that in the dream that he had, loads of loads of weird things happened. So first of all, the cut on his brother's cheek was completely healed and he, he pulls the plaster off and it, indeed it is completely healed underneath, which is bizarre, which shouldn't be possible. And then they're kind of psyching themselves up, they're going, they're going to kill Dougie, they think that he's screwed them over, 30 million plus everything that he won in the casino. So they get out and of course Dougie is there holding his giant cardboard box and Belushi Mitchum starts flipping out again because he said this is just like my dream he was holding a box and he gets his brother to agree that if the box contains the same thing that it contained in the dream that they won't kill him because it means that he's not their enemy and we've waited for a really long time I think for when Dougie Coop was finally going to connect with Cherry Pie in some mm -hmm. way and so it's a really lovely reveal when the presence of a cherry pie in the bottom of this giant cardboard box turns out to be the thing that saves his life, basically, because it's exactly the same as the dream. So they don't kill him, and in instead they, they search his pockets, and they find the $30 million check, and suddenly they are best buds once again. Yeah, I think it's really odd, this, this whole sequence, because very rapidly, I mean, the whole plot with the Mitchum brothers is resolved we have um a sudden swing from dougie being the target of all these different malevolent forces in las vegas to that being highly subverted and it's clear that 
the presence of Mike giving him the cherry pie, or at least making him go in there to buy the cherry pie, was something that has saved Dougie Coop. But at the same time, the fact that the lodgers, you know, good or bad, have influenced the Mitchum brothers themselves is kind of a bit strange as well. So for them to have actually potentially healed the uh, wound on Robert Nepper Mitchum's face is kind of strange. But to give him this dream, it also implies that the powers that the Lodge has can exert themselves over many different characters, not just those who are particularly attuned to uh, the supernatural or the slightly strange extra-dimensional forces which they exert. Yeah, because we've seen them give people dreams and visions before, I guess, but we've never seen them physically heal someone. Yeah, it kind of shows, I suppose, how powerful the, the Lodgers are. And I do wonder if this ability to heal will come in later. You know, And whether... Uh, uh, well, the other side of it is, do you think that these are actually the products of the Lodge, or are they actually the products of Cooper? So is he able to do these things? Is that what's really happening? Because we've already seen him have you know, that kind of level of intu- uh, intuition coming back, etc. Yeah, I don't know, maybe. I mean, we, we're still assuming that as Dougie Coop, he is just a regular human and he's being saved by the Lodges, but maybe he has some kind of lodgy powers himself now that he's come back. Yeah, I just in general, I just really love this scene out in the desert. I think it's very funny. It's very nicely played out. I, I love the way initially they, they're going to tell the limo driver to go because although he clearly knows what's going to happen, they uh they're clearly trying to keep him at some kind of half arm's length away from, <laughs> from it all. And and just the, the acting in the whole scene, I think, is brilliant. I think Belushi and Nepa are fantastic in it. Yeah, they are very much gangsters, but with a conscience. And it's interesting that although they were portrayed as the most stereotypical sort of casino mob boss kind of gangsters originally, they've turned out to have been the ones that have subverted that. And we've ended up with slightly more malevolent forces in Mr. Todd, who seemed quite passive when he first appeared in parts one and two, but is now quite dangerous when we've seen him in recent episodes. And the same with uh, Anthony Sinclair. He initially started off as somebody who was potentially, you know, a work colleague who was doing a few underhand things, but you realise he's in league with very dangerous forces as well in Las Vegas. And I, I do get the sense that all of these people are going to be on the wrong side of uh, Dougie and Bushnell in the next episode. Yeah, I mean, as villains go, there are worse villains than the Mitchum brothers, that's for certain. Uh, you know, to be fair, they were planning to kill someone, so they were actually going to do it themselves. Hmm. You know, they, they didn't send a series of inept hitmen one after the other, after someone. They were just going to do it themselves. Yeah. Yeah, the only thing I think which is actually missing from the whole sequence, quite unusually, is seeing Coop actually get the pie hmm. and get it in a very large box. I don't know how that took place and whether maybe Bushnell assisted in some way getting that. He, yeah. just, he, he just kind of ends up with it. And it's odd you don't see him interact with anyone. And I don't know how he would have articulated the need to have that. Yeah, and surely they could have had a smaller box to put a pie yeah. But it kind of spoiled the surprise. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it was a bit too. Uh, it did remind me of Seven. Yeah. You know, I was kind of thinking the whole what's in the box because the last time we saw somebody driving into the desert with a box like that, it was a head, <laughs> and it certainly wasn't going to be Garland Briggs' head. So, uh, yeah. 
Yes, yeah, so then they all go for a celebratory meal, as you do when you've just decided <laughs> not to kill someone after all. Um, and what's interesting is at the very beginning, they're, they're making a joke about Do, uh, Coop's, Dougie Coop's son not having a jungle gym. And one of the Mitchum brothers, I forget which one, says something like, even our orphanage had a jungle mm. gym, which implies that the two of them grew up together in an orphanage. Yeah. And suddenly it makes a lot more sense when they were talking in the previous episode about Candy and the way that she was completely spaced out and they, they were in the control room and they said something like, we can't fire her, she's got nowhere else to go. Yeah. It, it suddenly makes sense that they would sort of take in these waifs and strays who didn't have any other home, yeah, who didn't have yeah. anywhere else to go. Yeah, it's, no, it's a re- that's a really good observation. I didn't see that at all, but... Yeah, it does kind of put everything into place. But the only thing I thought of when I heard about an orphanage and I saw Jim Belushi was I was thinking more about the Blues Brothers. But yeah, no, that's that that's that does explain a lot actually, and it does explain probably the nature of their sort of closeness as well as brothers. It's yeah, that's that's kind of interesting. So. In this restaurant, we have the piano player in the back who's playing this kind of fun, jaunty theme in the background. But then all of a sudden, he kind of stops and he plays this very slow theme that he uh, plays at the end as well. And everything just seems to slow down for everything, especially for Dougie. He suddenly glazes over a little bit and he looks very contemplative and it's unclear exactly what's going on but i remember when we actually watched this i thought is this the moment is this the moment where he's going to you know regain his faculties and become aware who of who he is and we also see at this point um the woman from the silver mustang shows up so the old woman who was following him around to try and work out which slot machines were paying out when they had the black lodge floor and fire symbol above them she emerges as well yeah so she was obviously in a very sorry state when we saw her in the casino um but she won i mean it must have been hundreds of thousands of dollars um from paying the machines which they must have paid out yeah so why are they going after dougie (laughs) you know if they paid out to other people that same day um, but now, you know, she's completely turned her life around and she's there with her son. She explains to, to Dougie, she calls him Mr. Jackpots because she doesn't know his, his name. Um, she explains to him the difference that he's made in her life and the fact that you know, it's turned everything around. She's She's got a, a house and a dog and she's back together <laughs> connecting with her family again and it's just changed everything. And she she says how grateful she is that she can actually say thank you. And she tells Mitchum Brothers, oh, you should be aware of what a special person you're having dinner with. Mm. And it all turns into this really kind of lovely, um, almost kind of like circle of appreciation where even the Mitchums, these, you know, hard-boiled gangsters, Mm. are are almost kind of tearing up listening to this story about how one person helped another person win hundreds of thousands of dollars at their casino. (laughs) I think they also must be relieved that they didn't go through with killing him. Yeah. (laughs) As well. But it's... It's nice. I mean, the one strand that's run through the Dougie plotline has been not only this idea that the 
lodgers may be influencing his environment to help him survive, but the fact that he's had a very positive effect on those around him. Yeah, I mean, even something as small as the guy who never drank his coffee and then drank the like the green tea, yeah. the green tea latte mm. or whatever it was, and then really liked it and just yeah. got this stupid grin on his face. Even this this small positive difference that he he inadvertently made in someone's life. Yeah, it does feel like all these events are sort of coming full circle now. The things that we saw at the very beginning of the Las Vegas era of uh, Twin Peaks: The Return are starting to resolve nicely and i think there's a sense as well that uh dougie's development is almost complete as well but it is strange i think that these events are happening in the absence of janie because it's just strange to see him in this environment all of a sudden being lauded over by the mitchum brothers and having a wonderful evening but it's strange that uh, his wife's not there. Yeah, because she hasn't been in a couple of episodes yeah. now, has she? Um, which means I, I expect that she will appear next time, which I think has to bring some kind of conclusion to the Las Vegas storyline. <laughs> We've been saying that for weeks now. It's <laughs> it, almost the end of the Las Vegas storyline. We're going to go back to Twin Peaks. <laughs> the only antagonists left are the axis of Todd Sinclair. Yeah. Um, Ike's in prison, everybody else has been one round to Dougie's side in one way or another. But Hutch is still involved. Hutch and Chantal. Yeah, if they haven't finished killing the warden yet. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it does feel like meeting the woman from the casino again was some kind of closure. And with that beautiful music, and I think it was in the credits, I think there's a piece of music called Heartbreaking, mm. which is by Bad Lamenti, it says it's composed and performed by him. And it, it does feel like bringing closure to a lot of the the Dougie Vegas storylines that were going on. Hmm. Um, I, I do wonder now if we will actually see the Mitchums again or if they're just going to be left happy with their $30 million. Well, I wonder if now they're going to work to protect him. You know, Maybe they'll realise that uh, he's in trouble and they'll do their best to kind of help him out in the same way that he's helped them. Well, they must now know that Sinclair lied to them. Yeah. So if Bushnell doesn't thump him, I think something much worse is going to happen to him. <laughs> or maybe they'll go after Todd, I don't yeah. know, if he is ultimately their, their enemy. <laughs> and we do see this very strange interaction again where the Mitchums beckon over uh, Candy, Mandy and Sandy. And again, they're all completely spaced out, as we were saying earlier, but I suppose most of all it's noticeable in Candy, who's mm. in a complete other realm at the time as uh, they're trying to get her attention yeah now we rewatched this over and over and over <laughs> again does he call her annie or is it just the is it just the accent and him speaking quickly i think the third time it really sounds like robert nepper is saying annie the first time it sounds like canny <laughs> the second time sounds like candy but the third time really sounds like Annie. But again, it's really hard to know. I mean, you can start to hear these things when you are really listening hard, but it's it's unclear what's going on. Yeah. So they serve up the cherry pie that was in the box, and I really thought I really thought he might wake up. Yeah. I really thought the cherry pie was going to do it, but it, it seems like one step closer to uh, to bringing him back. 
Yeah, I mean, he's certainly enjoying it. And he's changed a lot, even in the last few episodes. Mm. Um, and when Robert Nepper, you know, refers to it as a damn good pie. And then it's interesting that Dougie Cook doesn't just repeat it parrot fashion, but with his own kind of Dale Cooper stylings, he's like, damn good. Mm. And it's obvious that uh, something is clicking into place. But maybe they save that for the next episode rather than have it happen as the cliffhanger at the end of uh, this one, which would have been a probably more canonical way to do it. Yeah, but, but also when um, they say, oh, Candy, get another piece of pie for a friend, when he repeats the word friend, again, mm. he's not just repeating it. Mm. He actually gets quite emotional yeah. about it. Yeah. And I think these, the other thing that is happening throughout all these scenes, both with... Uh, the old lady from the casino and also with candy is the way that those scenes are staged there's something very odd about how it looks physically like the relationship between cooper and laura when they're in the red room those moments where cooper is sitting down often looking straight ahead and laura kind of leans in towards him and kisses him just like the old lady does but also it just seems like there's some callback to those moments as well i wonder if these are also part of cooper becoming more aware of what's going on as well um i think it has to happen soon yeah and when when candy spaces out and they try and ask her why they were late arriving she starts rambling on about how much traffic there was <laughs> uh on the roads through town and it, and it makes you realise that when she was on the security camera talking to Sinclair, she probably was just talking about air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, because we thought, you know, maybe there's something suspicious going on. Maybe she, maybe we thought, oh, maybe she works for Todd or she's planted there or she's giving some information to Sinclair. Yeah, she was just talking about air conditioning for a few <laughs> minutes. And they must be used to this kind of stuff where she just drifts off and starts talking to people. So maybe being fully aware of that, that's why they are so protective of her as well. Hmm. And so, as the episode finally ends, we return to the jaunty music a little bit, and we focus on the piano player. And this is interesting, because actually, I don't think that dude is actually playing the piano. So certainly, I don't think there was a piano player credited in the, uh, in the end credits. Mm. But it, does, it doesn't look like his body movements are matching up with the music. So I do wonder if it is actually performed by Angelo Badalamenti, and he's just pretending to play at the same time. The only thing I thought was odd was, I'm not sure if you noticed it, but after the starring Carl McLaughlin text comes up, before the main credits start, you can see the lamp flicker. There's some weird shadow that appears on the light. I mean, it's become this thing now where, especially after the key card in the hotel door last <laughs> week, everything is, is up for grabs at the moment when you're looking at these things. But that was really noticeable. Mm. Something flickering in, in, in the background. And that lamp is otherwise completely stable the whole time. So that was kind of odd, but I don't really know what it meant other than potentially something which is watching over the whole situation is making its presence known in some way. So that's it for our roundup of what happened in part 11 of Twin Peaks The Return. I think overall, I think... I think we said at the beginning as well, it was a 
really strong episode that had a real sense of the original Twin Peaks series, mixing like the surreal moments, the humour, the farce, and sort of the horror of events as well, all in one. Um, I think overall, it, it really just feels like you know everything is being lined up now with all these characters potentially heading towards Twin Peaks. I still think that's what you know Albert was getting at before he was interrupted. Hmm. So what kind of things do you think might be sort of on the cards for the next episode, if if indeed it's even worth guessing anymore? <laughs> so I, I can see the Vegas storylines wrapping up with some sort of collection of... I, I, I still think Bushnell's going to punch someone because it's been signposted so many times now uh, that he was a boxer. And I, I think it's got to be Sinclair at this point. Um, if we do see the Mitchums again, I wonder if they will then take Sinclair out or take Mr. Todd out. Um, either way, I think that will protect Dougie Coop in some way. But there are multiple trails that will lead people who are currently external to the Las Vegas situation to him. So you've got the fact that the Fuscos sent his prints off, which has got to flag something somewhere sooner or later. And you've got the fact that the wedding ring that was in Briggs' stomach which is Janie, Ian, Dougie, and they are surely the only Janie, Ian, Dougie in the country. Mm. That's got to lead the Buckhorn police and, and the FBI in their direction, probably at the same time that the prints get yeah. flagged. So that, that's got to lead them to Cooper eventually. And at the same time, you've got the potential for Mr. C sending uh, Hutch and Chantel mm. off to do the job that everybody else has failed to do mm. so far. And first, that includes Warden Murphy. Yeah, so we haven't actually seen that they've killed Warden Murphy yet. Mm. Uh, it could be that we will never know who Mr. Strawberry was <laughs> or what was going on. It could be one of those things that just left open forever. Mm. We can all we can all theorise about it forever. Um, but I, I think... I I don't want things to end badly in Las Vegas, particularly for Janie and Sonny Jim. I'm just trying to imagine how Cooper is going to end up regaining himself and leaving in a way that doesn't end badly i think we mentioned it a couple of weeks back on twitter but i still wonder if there's a chance for dougie to be recreated i don't know why but i think given that he was made once is there ever a situation where he could be manufactured again and reinserted back into his old life yeah because you must if you can manufacture a person then surely you can you can do it can't you? yeah i think on one hand, it would be very hard to see, after all this, the uh, effect of Cooper returning to himself on, you know, those around him in his Las Vegas life. It's very strange that all of a sudden you care about the people that he will leave behind, even though you desperately want him to become Dale again. Um, but I can see a situation where maybe... You know, Dougie will be made again and and put back. There's something that could be happening there. Yeah, although preferably not the old Dougie who seems yeah, to be I can, a, bit, a bit useless. But if you can manufacture one, maybe you could just manufacture one which is more in tune with uh, the Dale-influenced Dougie. <laughs> I don't know. There, I don't know. I can just see. I could see that potentially happening because there's almost no value in showing Janie and Sunny Jim get killed in the crossfire anymore. Although maybe that's just because I just don't want to see that. I know last week I was thinking that's exactly what's going to happen. They're all going to get killed. Uh, 
But I don't know. I also felt that that may have been a trigger for Cooper to come back to reality, and I don't think that's going to be necessary anymore. It's hard. It's hard to know. But it was it was notable that Janie wasn't here in this episode. It was notable that Mister C wasn't in it. And I think in Twin Peaks there are still those big, big, big notable absences that we <laughs> won't go into uh, too much depth on. But there's there's some weird stuff going on in Twin Peaks. Yeah, there's people we haven't seen at all. There's people we've seen for about twenty seconds. Yeah, but to be fair, some characters have turned up in one episode and had more in those, you know, few minutes uh, that they've appeared than they have. Uh, in whole stretches of the original series so i don't know i mean there's still the richard horn situation to sort out there's the red situation which <laughs> i you know i really fear for shelley in this whole thing because mm. there's something obviously not right about red and whether bobby's going to be able to save both becky and shelley i don't know um, there's still this mystery of what gerston is doing with Stephen. it's not something i i could have seen coming uh, obviously the biggest thing that everyone's worried about is uh, how's Mike's car dealership <laughs> <laughs> I thought we'd have a bigger role but I don't know I mean I kind of see a situation where maybe he'll just catch up with uh, Bobby and Bobby will threaten him with some kind of don't give that guy a job at the car dealership I don't know what's going to happen There's, it'd be nice to see them reunited in some way and what do you think about this idea of the woman in the car with the strange zombie child how do you think that plays into events I, I can I can honestly see them never being referred to again. Yeah. And it just being one of these completely messed up things yeah. that occasionally happens and then you're left with no explanation. <laughs> <laughs> I genuinely think that's that's gonna be it. I think it's just one of those incredibly memorable moments. Um that that doesn't have to be explained. Yeah. It it, it can just be a, a completely warped thing that that happened and it's, it's one of those things where because you're looking at Bobby looking in through the car window you're almost thinking well how much of this is what's actually happening and how much of this is what Bobby's experiencing what he's seeing rather than what is happening yeah what he's perceiving rather yeah than what he's is actually playing out in front of him yeah, yeah. because he's there's just been this incredibly stressful event where bullets come flying through the window of the diner and he's the one who has to actually go outside and deal with this problem so your heart's got to be going at 100 miles an hour by that point and then you find that actually it's something as well air quotes innocuous as a kid (laughs) having found a gun in Mm. but you know if if that you can call that the most innocuous situation which that would happen Um, and then there's some woman who won't stop beeping the car horn over and over and over and over again it just creates this bizarre manic energy which is uh filling everything and it just it yeah maybe it's just overwhelming and that's what he seems to think is happening in front of him yeah i mean you never know with lynch because sometimes what you see isn't what's happening it's what a person is perceiving or yeah or remembering or yeah yeah but did you think that the woman who was shouting um we're late we've got miles to go looked kind of similar to you know in part eight god of light where that couple in the car they come across the woodsman in the middle of the road and that there's a woman in the passenger seat and she's kind of screaming and growling and time gets all distorted and her voice gets distorted yeah it did it did have a strong 
callback feeling to that scene. I think, particularly because the woman looked the same. I think it's a different woman. I think the one in part 11 is an actress called Laura Kenny, and then the one in part 8 is somebody called Leslie Berger. It's a different actress, but they kind of look similar, which I think is the first thing. That whole thing that looks weird, that same scene where the woodsman, the Lincoln woodsman, looks in, hmm. it does feel like the same thing that Bobby's doing when he looks into the cast. That's the same callback. So for some reason, we have this strange feel that comes from part eight, which shouldn't necessarily fit in here. But all of a sudden, they've got a, a, an obvious sort of visual callback to, to what we've already seen. And that's not the only callback to part eight, because I'm not sure if we mentioned it earlier, but that bit where Becky is tearing around the house trying to find Stephen, the music that's playing there is the same music that they use during the atomic bomb explosion the uh, threnody for the victims of hiroshima so why you have those two callbacks you know featuring it i'm not really sure i mean that was really about you know the birth of evil happening and that's why i think it has very strong significance for what's going on in twin peaks where everything is just all going to hell yeah, well, do you think it's a, another reference then, the fact that the, you've got the girl in the passenger seat who is sick? Um, is that a callback to the, the girl who kind of eats the the bug frog thing? It could be. I mean, that'd be like melding all these different callbacks into one <laughs> zine. But yeah, it could be. There's something weird. There's something weird about that whole thing. And I, I don't know. I mean, like you say, maybe we just won't see this couple again maybe it's just meant to be very surreal and very strange or something you know that bobby is perceiving without it really happening the way he thinks it's happening and yeah i suppose the other thing is you know we we haven't seen jerry horn in a while no and i think we were talking about it last week but uh, do you think he's going to run into uh those journeying to jack rabbit's palace I think he will, and I think they better hurry up because he's been out there for a really long time. <laughs> With only his bag of drugs. I know, he, and, and that's just going to make things worse, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. But there are so many strands which I think are now left dangling, but they're all really Twin Peaks ones, aren't they? Yeah. You know, I think especially with Albert suggesting that the coordinates might be in Twin Peaks, it could be a lodge opening, we don't know, but there's something that's going to bring everyone over there. And the fact that the Buckhorn... FBI investigations are now linked means that you don't have too many things going around but all these things are moving back and it's going to leave us with what seven hours I think where I could see two thirds of that taking place in uh, Twin Peaks I mean certainly we never saw what happened to the other people who Shelley was having drinks with in that opening episode we Mm. haven't seen James we haven't seen that guy with the funny glove who was with James (laughs) who thought the roadhouse was the dog's bollocks. <laughs> what the hell was going on? It was, uh, yeah, it's all, it does feel like all these strands are now ready to be picked up again and tied together. Uh, maybe not in a neat bow, but they will be kind of, you know, brought together in some way. Yeah, but now that Hastings is dead, they've found Ruth's body, um, they've been to the zone site, the only two things that I can see that are left to do in Buckhorn, one is is the ring and the potential for the wedding ring to mm. lead them in the direction of Las Vegas. And uh, the other is surely the inevitable part where Albert and Constance move in together, <laughs> which I think we all want to see happen. Mm. Live happily ever after. Maybe they just let Albert, you know, jump off the train in Buckhorn and stay there. 
with the, with the points and say, don't, don't worry, Albert, you've, you've done enough. Yeah. You've done enough. You've seen enough, certainly. Yeah. I, 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 I kind of want his his character and conscience to uh, get to go and have a happy ending. <laughs> but speaking of happy endings, we also have another problem, which is uh, what the hell's going on with Laura and Bob? <laughs> <laughs> because we haven't seen them properly now. It's, no. it's very odd. And I get the sense that the last proper Bob appearance was in the epic part eight. And I think, you know, he must have something up his sleeve. Yeah, we don't know where he's gone, what he's doing. Is he inhabiting somebody else now? Um, did he have some kind of contingency plan for if mm. if his host got Where's shot? Ray? Has Ray gone to the farm? <laughs> Ray's bought the farm. <laughs> I, I think I think Ray's there's got to be some kind of showdown between Ray and Mr. C, um, but this is now a, a Bobless Mr. C. Um, that that whole storyline has to come back in a, in a, in a major way because we've we've surely got to find out at some point what on earth is going on with Philip Jeffries's role in all of this, mm. and how that's going to be revealed. Because I, I genuinely don't think that they would recast the character. Yeah. So either Bobby is in it, or the character is never seen yeah. and just referred to. Or it's somebody using his identity, but that would be quite cheap because I think they could have done something else with that. Yeah, and and that storyline has kind of been left hanging for quite a while now. We've had mm. no Mister C for two episodes straight, no Bob for three episodes mm. straight. Plenty of evil things have been going on. Um, plenty of villains have been around, but they've been by and large kind of human villains usually in the shape of Richard Horn mm. and then some of the villains in Las Vegas turned out to be not so villainous after all <laughs> and we also have that mystery another one right for this of uh, the glass box oh, yeah. you know that has to make an appearance again in a more central uh, manner I mean I wonder if there are more glass boxes maybe there'll be one that's found maybe one in the listening post or something or, or near the military installations in uh, Blue Pine Mountain there has to be some reason to do that I, but I can't see a need to necessarily go all the way back to New York um, but I like the idea of the box making an appearance again yeah and, and who the identity of the mysterious billionaire is and who that other guy in the photo is mm. with Mr C Telly Savalas <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can see Buckhorn wrapping up soon and I can see Vegas wrapping up soon um, and I can see everything just descending upon Twin Peaks. And if you think about how completely insane the final episode of season two was, compared to all the weirdness and craziness that come before, no one was prepared for the, the final episode. I, I genuinely don't know what on earth we're going to be watching in these final two hours yeah. when that last parts 17 and 18 roll around together. Because I think it's going to be nothing that anyone could possibly expect yeah and i think to be honest we may even get that next week because you know part 12 is called let's rock <laughs> that doesn't have very good connotations in the twin peaks universe it's it's going to be very lodgy i think mm. um i don't think it's going to be a misdirect of a title uh, and i don't know who's going to say it but it could be um you know, it could be the evolution of the arm in a direct link to what's happened before. But last time it was written on that windscreen mm. in Fire Walk With Me. So, you know, in a shock twist, are we actually going to, in another link to Fire Walk With Me, actually have the reveal of uh, Philip Jeffries? Or, dare we say it, even Chet Desmond? 
But that was in the fat trout trailer park, wasn't it? Yeah. And I think in the next episode, there's going to be more yeah. things happening there because if if that is where Miriam has crawled her way to, yeah, and goodness knows what's going to happen next time Becky and Stephen see each other. Yeah. My goodness, I think it's going to be a very fun ride for the next few weeks. Mm. So that really is it for <laughs> our wrap up of part 11. Thank you for listening. Thank you for continuing to support our podcast. It's really nice. I know we say this every week, but it is so nice to put out an episode and get all of your wonderful feedback and also talk to so many Twin Peaks fans about what's going on and discuss and share theories about everything. I mean, it's so wonderful to have an episode on a Sunday, put an episode out and we have a full week of fun interacting with everyone. So yeah, please, if you're listening, if you're enjoying what you're listening to, please subscribe rate and review us on itunes or stitcher or wherever you get your podcast because it really helps kind of grow our base as well follow us on twitter at tfcaa you can find us on facebook our page is time for cakes and ale which is our main podcast and also you can visit our website www.timeforcakesandale.com but in the meantime i think that's it for us for this week and we'll see you next time for part 12. Let's rock. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>